This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. Oh, man. Just one second here. So this is awkward. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. Hey, Matt. How you doing? It's the new year. It is. It's January 2nd. I'm about to get on a plane and come back to Vancouver, but... Uh... Very nice. We had to get this out of the way first. Well, here's the thing. For the new year, we've got a fantastic show and maybe the best potential new year guest we could have ever imagined having, Janet LePage. This is, you know what? We talked to her in late 2018 and it was so inspiring. I started planning almost immediately after we got off the phone for, for 2019. Uh, and, and I'm pumped for this year. And this is this is a fantastic conversation for for kicking off the podcast in 2019. Yeah, for sure. And and here's the thing. I mean, we could we could talk about Janet and give her a proper introduction. Her CV is massive. But just to highlight a few things. Top 40, under 40 um, from business in Vancouver. She won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award uh, for real estate and construction. She went from zero to 10,000 units in under five years. So that's over 50 apartment buildings, over 10,000 units across five cities in under five years. Unbelievable, really. This is, and this is why she's so inspiring. Apart from the fact that the stats you outlined are unbelievable. Janet LePage lives on the North Shore, has two kids, you know, is in her kind of mid-30s. It's like, 
he, there's a million reasons. And I can say this because I'm uh, also in my late thirties with a child. And, and I feel like there's a million reasons that I can give myself as to why I'm not doing something. Right. And Janet is one of those people that just has plowed through and has achieved insane results as right. a result of kind of her determination and, uh, and intelligent way of approaching real estate. And it, it, she really unpacks it for us in the, in the conversation that we had with her. And it's really inspiring to figure out how she went from having, you know, some goals early on in her life to where she's gotten to now. And it's, it's timely because over the last few weeks, we've been doing nothing but goal planning and goal setting for 2019. Well, yeah. And you know what? We've been goal planning for years now. And it's really when you, when you have your goals set out at the start of the year and you actually write them down and you return to them, the results are staggering. Uh, and, and that's why it's such a huge component of our business. Right. And, and we, uh, we always reference that Harvard study that I, I don't have with me. And, uh, I don't think either of us really know the specific details. All we know is that, uh, something like 20% of the class actually had goals and wrote them down and the other 80% didn't. And that 20% made a billion dollars more than anybody else in the class or something, <laughs> something like that. Uh, we'll footnote it. Yeah. 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 There was, there was, a, they, they achieved their goals in a way that was staggering. And uh, the correlation was writing their goals down and that's what inspired us. But we, we have a kind of specific method and it's not, like we invented uh, how, how to set up a year for your goals and how to do it successfully. But there are some, some things that we've been doing over the years that I think has translated into success at the end of the year. And, and what, Adam? I think we came up with five kind of key goal setting strategies. Yeah, if you are, if you haven't set your goals for 2019 yet, you are not too late. It's still a great time to uh, to look at that and and make sure that you have a plan moving forward with this year. But tip number one would be write them down with an action plan. So always write your goals down. Yeah, always write your goals down. And there's an obvious reason for this. One is it actually forces you to put pen to paper, right. which is a in my mind it always is a clarifying process. Having some vague idea in your head is one thing, or even you know telling somebody else about it is is one thing but when you put pen to paper it clarifies the process it actually uh in my mind at least creates a situation in which when it's on the piece of paper it's more it, it's more real to me and and it feels like it's it's a it's solidified in a way and you know what i do too is uh and this is a small point but i usually buy a book that is nicer than the tip because we use like I, you know I use a, a scribblers in in my life a lot for lists and stuff like that yeah uh, to keep scribblers organized. I haven't heard scribblers in a while uh, but yeah are they not too. called scribblers I'm not so a fan of scribblers are they not I don't know. called scribblers I don't know they were when I was eight <laughs> I feel like notebook is is the grown up version of scribblers. Yeah. <laughs> So pretentious. Yeah. So pretentious. Yeah. Notebook. But okay, go on. I, I haven't five, started have many scribblers. I haven't started many meetings by let me get my scribbler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just let me sit down and grab my scribbler here. Uh, but anyway, buy a nicer notebook. And it's it's because I use just the regular, regular cheap, the cheapest thing I can basically find. Uh, but when I when I write my goals, I always buy a nicer book. And it's because it's the one that I'm going to carry with me all year and check compulsively, right? 
Well, yeah, yeah. Which actually brings us to to the second to the second strategy that we employ. Yeah, use the smart method. So this is uh, we didn't invent it here. Uh, Google it. We'll put some links in our show notes as well. Uh, the smart method. So specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time specific goals. An example of that, Matt, is instead of saying something like "I want to have a better relationship with my mother in 2019." it might be better to say, I'm going to call my mother once every week or on Monday every right. week, right? So it's getting down to the specific action that's going to make the result happen, right? Right. Depending right. on it's how those calls go. Thing. Yes, because the calls can go, can go either way, but at least you, you have a plan in place. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, number three, uh, and that, that's not specific to you, mom. Uh, number three, <laughs> visualize success. Okay. So I know we're, we're both big on visualizing success. I mean, you've got that dream board, uh, mostly cutouts from Cosmopolitan magazine, but, uh, uh, we, we like to pull back and visualize us basically at the finish line, right? Well, yeah, you have to visualize success. And in, in my mind, it does a few things. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you positive, which is right. crucial. And it keeps like, your goals top of mind at the end of the year, even though, in my mind, when you're writing out your goals and you're breaking down the actionable processes, like call your mom, the end result is often incremental, right? Right. But you want to always keep that end point in mind. It's it's having a why. Like, why are you doing this at the end of the day? And and I mean, that's that's what you have to be thinking about all the time but you're right it's it, you're thinking about the big picture while systematically implementing that the the small incremental process right exactly number 4 matt is review your goals consistently um if not constantly and and that's something that we do we have our monday meetings where we sit down and we go over what our actionable plan is and we hold each other accountable yeah where and and it's also i mean in our case specifically uh, we can hold each other uh, accountable, but it is useful having somebody that you're bouncing ideas off. You're accountable to them. You're potentially revising as you go, but but that is a crucial component of the process. And last but not least, don't be afraid to celebrate your wins. So number five is celebrate wins, and it's it's okay to do this, uh, you know, privately as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's more I got a com- that's a comment on uh, on on the world we live in today with Instagram and uh, bragging. Right? Uh, yeah, you don't have to have hashtags on every win of your. Yeah, but uh, but but sometimes it's nice to. Sometimes you're blessed. Sometimes you're blessed. Yeah. You just don't have sometimes to always you're be blessed. blessed. You can be blessed privately though. Sometimes. Okay, but we got a fantastic show today, Matt, and it's one of the one of the greatest interviews I think that we've put together here. I'm super excited about our interview with Janet, and this one is going to motivate you to get out there and and get organized in life. This is a great start to 2019, so enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Janet LePage, CEO and co-founder of Western Wealth Capital. How are you doing, Janet? I'm excellent, thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today, Janet. So can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I, am the, I am CEO of Western Wealth Capital, which is a real estate investment company. It's headquartered um, in North Vancouver, British Columbia, but we um, focus on buying 
multifamily apartment complexes across the United States. Um, in the last four and a half years, we've transacted um, over a billion dollars in, in purchases and, and sales of apartment um, buildings along with our investment partners. And uh, just last month, we hit our 10,000th unit. So uh, it's wow, been congratulations. almost five years. Yeah, that that is in, in, incredible how you've you've reached 10,000 units in five years. Uh, can you maybe speak to what like what does a day in your life look like these days when you're acquiring doors at at that pace? Uh, no days the same. I also have a five and a seven year old, so I think for anyone who's a mom knows that I don't think you ever wake up and know how your day is going to um, unfold. Uh, but really, um, you know, we, as we've grown, we've also grown in expertise and skill sets. So a lot of my days, um, are really looking at the risk factors, the bigger, you know, macro, macro issues that we're facing. Do we, do we like this city? Do we want to continue, um, being in that market, um, anomalies that are coming up with our buildings? I'm often, you know, watching the ones that, um, you know, are completely going to plan and, and that we have an active correction uh, path going on, um, the leadership within the organization. So my my day as I've continued to grow has tried to stay further up and, and delegate into um, each one of these areas. You know, we had our, our year-end investor event uh, just, just last week where we st- distribute money and, you know, celebrate and, and look at the year ahead. And um, I was saying that, you know, you go four years back and there was two employees and now we have 28. So part of my growth has been growing as a leader. And, you know, with all of these now, these, this large team is really a force across all these cities making everything happen. And our, you know, our global um, investment partners. I mean, we've, we've come from being, you know, a smaller boutique investment option to a global equity platform. So, you know, learning about different cultures and what matters to them, uh, all of those pieces have been um, really something that I've had to spend a lot of time in, in the last year. Wow. So maybe, maybe stepping back a bit. So, so Janet, can you talk about how you got your start in real estate? Sure. It was actually, um, a bit of a hobby. Uh, it was back in 2008 and I had purchased a home, um, in Vancouver in 2003. And, you know, I remember the first time I got that letter, you know, your letter of assessment, and I didn't even know what that had, that was, I was quite young, I opened it up. And I could see that the value of the house had, you know, significantly grown, they had a pretty good growth run, kind of through 2004 through, you know, 2007 here right. in, in Vancouver. And I would look at it and go like, Oh, my gosh, I've done nothing. Yet, I've just made all this money in this house. And so I wanted to buy a couple more houses. I thought, wow, if I could do this with one, what if I could do it with a couple? So I took a lot of credit on the house. And in 2008, I got a real estate coach and was looking for a place where I could buy a cash flowing home. And um, at that time, the dollar was at par with, uh, you know, the U.S. And Phoenix was, you know, what we thought was the recession was only the beginning. But you could buy cash flowing homes. And I went down there and bought two um, investment rentals. And uh, they turned out to not be the best investments I ever made because the market went way down, but they were also the best two investments I ever made. Because from that, um, in early 2009, I went ahead and flipped my first home 
um, in Phoenix and um, I would buy buy homes uh, at the auction. Um, I'd get the list at 4 p.m. the day before and I would go and buy the homes with hard money lending at 18%. We would flip them, get them back on the market, um, usually about two weeks. It was a very simple flip and and sell them and, and did 58 homes in um in just over two years before I bought my first multifamily in 2011. Wow. So that was the beginning of my career, which was really quite honestly a hobby that just realized that grew into something that is really what we have today. So, so it sounds like you cut your teeth in, in Arizona. I did. Mm-hmm. And did you know that market? Like, so you're, you're, cause you live in North Vancouver, right? Um, and I'm just Always thinking have. with the auctions, were you spending a lot of time down in, in Phoenix? No, I was actually working full time, um, like in a pretty, pretty high level corporate career. Um, for the first ones, I was on the auction steps. After that, um, I built a team. And so there was somebody actually on the ground here in Phoenix that would get the list and we had a criteria set. You know, we needed to be a certain number of blocks from a school. We wanted to be a certain number of blocks from a main thoroughfare. Uh, we needed to have, like, there was just criteria when we looked at the house. And then at 4 p.m. that came out, and we had until 9 a.m. the next morning to decide on whether or not we were going to bid on this place. So we had a formula put down, okay, this is where it's located. Um, so that's that's positive. What is it going to cost us to put it back on the market? What do we think we can sell it for? How many days do we think we're going to have it on market? Let's build in all those interest costs, those rehab costs. What is our max bid price? So there was a lot of evening work. So when people say, well, how do you shift from that day job to the next job? And I said, I've always told them, I, you work two jobs. It, it's not a clean cut. It's not, it's not easy. It was, it was a lot of work. So, you know, you finish your day job and then you spend time analyzing house after house. I uh, had feet on the ground, eyes on the ground, and you know became intimately um, knowledgeable about Phoenix because of that. You know, you're constantly on Google Maps and on on it, and then the people on the ground. And if I was down there, I was crawling through the doggy doors, jumping fences. These houses were empty, so we were doing the best we could to get into them. They were locked, so you could see sight unseen, but be surprised what you can get through on a doggy door or an open window to get a better look at what actually existed inside. <laughs> and and you said you were you were working a corporate job. What, your background is in finance or I have a I have a, a joint major in computer science and business with a project management professional certification. So it's my world is very black and white or how I feel is very, you know, where I'm comfortable is black and white. And so, you know, when we're doing this, um, you know, you, you mentioned, how did you scale so quickly? How did you grow? Um, we've done that by reducing the number of variables that you introduce every time you buy something. And that really, if you look at the story of the houses, is exactly what I did. I bought a certain vintage of house. It had to be a certain number of blocks away. I wouldn't do more than You know, if the house needed more rehab than I could do in really a week, I wouldn't buy the house because that wasn't my job. I was just patching holes, cleaning carpets. The odd time we would replace the carpet very rarely, put in the appliances, you know, landscape the yard and it's back on the market. So it was anytime you introduce a variable, you're introducing risk and you're introducing additional time to execute. And those are things that 
I have consciously chosen not to in all along my real estate career was do something you know how to do and do it well so that you can do it fast and replicate it. And so, so thinking about that, Janet, how did you, how did you educate yourself so quickly then on, on the rehabbing process? And can you speak a little bit more about your coach and kind of what they were coaching you on? So the coach was actually, um, you know, as people always say, it's, it's almost like you you go to university and and they'll say, gosh, okay, you got the degree. What do you know? And I go, I don't know what I really learned in university other than I learned how to you know, finish a process. I got some global knowledge that was similar to the real estate coach. We spent about a a year together and we met once a week on the phone, uh, three times in person. But basically we went through everything there was to do with real estate. It was like everything from apartment deals to tax liens, to mobile home parks, to office, to retail houses. And when we met face to face, we probably walked over those three weekends about 100 deals and they were all different kinds of deals and his position with me was this everything is a deal everything's a deal but what's the deal whether it's a price whether it's a seller take back whether it's you know what what could make that profitable for you it may not be a deal that the person selling it wants to take but it was get it to a place where you would want to buy this and and write that offer whatever that looked like so that was a, a, a fundamental. What he really taught me wasn't so much about house flipping at all. What he taught me was just a really nice foundation of all the different ways, you know, that you can make money. What he did teach you is, and I, I often have people come forward and go, oh, I want to be a flipper because a flipper, you know, when you don't have a lot of capital, it's a great way to build capital quickly. Right. Um, and I often say to people, you know, be careful because you can also lose money quickly. It's, it's a high risk, high return game. And, and where people slip up is in the discipline. You win in flipping because you're disciplined and you win in flipping because you're willing to walk away. You win in real estate, period, because you're willing to walk away from something that doesn't fit. But when you're flipping in your number of days across, against the clock, you have to be that much more disciplined. So the coach... I think anyone getting into real estate needs a coach. Um, Anyone in real estate needs to define who they are and then go deeper into that level. But to be honest, I learned by, I think I learned by doing, you know, you you do one and then we would do two and I would do three. And then the next thing you know, I'm buying three in one day, but it was kind of doing one at a time and getting it sold and proving out the process. And and was your coach, I'm just thinking, it sounds like they were not, uh, local were they they from the states he was he was out of florida actually and and did you focus on the states like it sounds like you're it sounds like you had it was an opportune moment after the financial crisis of 2008 to to be looking in in the united states but it sounds like you immediately were drawn to that market can was it just the opportunity at the time um or can you was, speak a little bit I more about drawn, that i was drawn to it i was drawn to a cash flow so for me, you know, if people ask, gosh, you must own a bunch in Vancouver. I don't. I don't at all. Because for me, um, I like cash flowing investments. And and there wasn't at that time a market in Canada that I felt really strongly about and that I felt like there was there was nothing in comparison in Canada 
but in my experience hasn't been not with the same size city and same size growth. The other thing I made a conscious decision is I didn't want to be in a small town. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I wanted to be in a really size, really large size metro because I wanted to be able to grow with that city. So I was looking for cash flow and I was looking for size. And in Canada, we don't have a ton of big cities, right? It's just, we don't. And the other thing I really didn't shied away from because I wasn't equipped for was rent control. Rent control is a whole nother layer of rent control and um, is a whole nother layer of things that you need to understand um, and navigate through because it's another layer of risk as a landlord in that, you know, if you think you're going to increase rents and there's rent control, you need to build that in and there's nothing wrong with it, but it is another layer of risk that you do need to manage. So I had I had kind of gotten clear with myself, the things that I knew. And at the time with the dollar being at par, the size of the city and the, the amount of cash flow you could make, I was just drawn um, to the United States. The coach didn't, had, didn't have any more special skills for um, Canada for this versus the U.S. For the most part, an apartment building is an apartment building, a tax lien is a tax lien. These things are, you know, ambiguous to where you are in the world with respect to real estate. So, Janet, can you speak a little bit about the period between when you started buying uh, homes at the auctions in Phoenix and when you founded Western Wealth Capital? Absolutely. So, um, late late 2010, early 2011, the auction started to dry up. And what I mean by dry up is there were still houses, but there was a lot of people doing it. And it was hard to make money at it because people at the auctions were bidding up the prices. And so that differential between what you could buy it for and resell it for was getting skinnier. And I I, I, I saw it happening. And, and to be honest, I hated it at that moment because here I was in something I really understood. I knew how to do. I was starting to grow it. And the what I call the burning platform or the opportunity was disappearing in front of me. And that was really scary because I, I thought, gosh, this is what I'm going to do forever or, or can do. And so I started looking at, okay, what can I do next? And apartment building, uh, buying apartment buildings at that time in 2010 was really hard. Bank financing, especially for somebody that didn't have a huge balance sheet like myself and domiciled in Canada was really hard. There wasn't a lot. There was mainly hard money. So it wasn't something that I had a ton of access to, but I really wanted to do it. So I was about a year of commitment, of looking, of learning, um, of using a couple of the investors that I had done houses with, um, you know, getting them comfortable with the thought of doing an apartment building. But what was interesting was, you know, when I when you're doing one house at a time, it's great. You make money. But gosh, like I started thinking, gosh, if you just do one transaction, you can get like 30 houses at the same time. And so it was August of 2011 when I bought my first apartment building and it was supposed to go to auction. That was, you know, my buying method that I was comfortable with. And I walked on site and it was a bank out of Ohio that had it. It was right near Arizona State University. I mean, just walking distance. And I walked on. I thought, this is it. We, we need to buy this. Go home. You know, I'm in Arizona. Go to the hotel and at find the president's name of this bank and phone him at home at seven o'clock at night and say, I said, I see that this is going to auction. I see the price. I will pay you a hundred thousand dollars more if you do not take it to auction. 
And he said, well, I need to think about it. And so I didn't sleep that night just to my stomach. And sure enough, the next morning, it was not on the list. My phone rang and they said, okay, we would like to do this with you. So we were able to purchase it. And, and um, you know, I knew that if it went, I knew what that market was worth. Had it, you know, thankfully the bank was in Ohio where they just didn't know the real value of that asset. And, um, and so we were able to, you know, he thought he was getting a deal by getting the hundred grand and we, we were getting a screaming deal by not letting it get bit up in at auction. So for the next um, three years or two and a half years, I bought three apartment buildings and I, and I had two little ones they're 16 months apart. So I was sort of, you know, I was sort of dabbling between. And um, I, when I had the, my daughter, I knew that going back to work at the level that I was at and, and, you know, at this point I had three apartment buildings and I loved it. Like the, the reality is I loved it. All my goal was, was to be able to replace the income, you know, that I made at my corporate role and, um, you know, be able to be flexible to, you know, be around to, to help raise my, my little ones. And, um, so Western wealth capital, um, bought their first property at the beginning of 2014 and the rest is really history. And has your life actually simplified since <laughs> the first property was with Western Wealth Capital or, or have you kind of spiraled? It sounds like you guys have been acquiring properties at such a pace. Like how how on the ground are you uh, or have you been over the last four or five years? Well, if you go back, you know, that's a funny question people always ask me. Uh, you know, you're asking it also of a mom that had, you know, started this with no kids and suddenly, you know, had a zero and one year old where I would literally have my daughter, you know, I would nurse her in an, in a leasing office as I'm walking properties. When she was six months old was her first trip down to Phoenix and, you know, off we went. But um, what's changed is that if you go back to the beginning, it was myself and my co-founder. So, you know, I'm looking at all the properties, I'm doing the modeling, I'm filling out the forms for the financing. I'm, you know, negotiating the PSA. I'm, you know, every step along the way, I'm I'm doing it. And and as we've grown, you know, you as you grow, you suddenly realize you can put someone into that role and and move out of it. Right now, um, you know, we've done 55 deals in 50 months. Um, 55 apartment buildings in about 50 months and uh, when you look at that right now I think we have I think three or four buildings that we're you know in the process of buying so somewhere between you know signing up the contract to closing and I do always see the asset you know I'm involved in the sign off of the financial models we sort of set up a gating process where all the critical risk points I sign off on what I'm not doing. So the craziness, I'm not sure I know how to live my life other than quite busy and crazy. I I don't know what to do with myself. But the type of craziness that I think back to at the beginning, when I would spend an entire day filling out financing forms, I I haven't seen a financing form in three years, right? I, I sign them, but I don't fill them out. So it's a different busy each year. And every time I think I've got a handle on it, we go to that next level and and that's wonderful growth, but it's just different. I hope I've explained that. Um, No, it makes, makes complete sense. Perfect sense. So, so maybe, um, you know, you've talked a little bit about when you're evaluating a house, some of the criteria that you were using. Um, what about when you're looking at a, at a 
at a an apartment building or at commercial real estate how how does that criteria change and and what are some of the the risks that you're you're trying to avoid here or manage at least sure so in the western wealth capital um i'm going to talk about our program specifically one thing that i've learned is that you can make money a lot of ways in real estate i mean everybody knows that there is a ton of different ways and you have to pick your bread and butter and stick to it so i will talk about the two layers when we're picking an apartment building i'm going to leave the city economics out of it we should touch on that separately but assume we pick locations that have a certain criteria to fit the economic um profile and then we pick the building so actually now that i'm saying this let's reverse the order i'm going to talk <laughs> about the economic profile because okay. I, it does feed into what i'm buying when i'm looking at it we buy where we believe there's going to be jobs because everything about us is if there is a job there is someone needs to go and fill that job and therefore they need a bed and they need a roof over their head that is the number one fundamental thing about Western Wealth Capital and where we buy it. If you look at the cities that we're in, they are the top job growth cities. Not only is there good jobs today in low unemployment, it is only going to continue, um, you know, through the next foreseeable future. And, and Jen, so people are needing beds. It can, mm-hmm. Sorry, just curious as to what um, what kind of information you're drawing on uh, to to locate those cities and have such a strong belief in, in the future of them? Oh my gosh. Uh, you name it. It would be, you know, uh, any type of census information reports, economic reports. These are coming right down to city level economic projections and reports. It's, it's, we have research researchers that do it right down to the most nitty gritty levels of exactly the corporations that are, you know, building locations in this area. When are their jobs being created? Um, U.S. Census, like everything through uh, for the level of data that we're right. looking for. Okay, and I'm sorry to have cut you off there. So, so jobs are number one. Jobs are number one, without question. People need beds. Then let's layer on what kind of jobs are coming. We focus on what I call workforce housing. So this is service level jobs. These are telecommunication, installation and repair technicians. These are hospital workers. These are um, call center data. Uh, These are any of the support staff that would be to, uh, you know, a high level engineering firm. So they're usually either first time renters, long time renters. They're looking for, um, you know, they make an income where eventually they will buy a house. But right now they're renting, um, you know, due to their means, but they're gainfully employed. So we're very clear on that level that we like to work within. Pride of rentership is a really big part um, of, of what I'm looking for. So when you look at these cities, what kind of jobs are going there? So in Phoenix, as an example, 40% of all jobs immigrating into Phoenix are service level jobs. And the data shows that a very, very high percentage of them will be renters for at least a period of time. So what you're doing then is you're layering the type of job along with the type of housing that they're looking for. And then the third thing that I like to look at is affordability index. So what that says is for every dollar that you make in your pocket, 
how much of it goes to housing. And why are you looking at that? You're looking at that because we are in the business of increasing rents. We're in the business of buying a building, increasing rents, and you know, exponentially increasing the value of the property by doing so. So if a city like Phoenix, where only 22 cents on every dollar goes to housing, whereas in Vancouver, it's well over 50, 50 cents on the dollar, then if I increase your rent by a certain number of dollars, it is not going to have a massive impact on your quality of living because you are lower on the affordable uh, importability matrix. So when we take those three um, numbers together, that's how we rank our cities. There are a few other small things, but those are our three leading indicators when we pick a city. So let's get into the city then. Now, once I'm in that city, I'm looking for an asset that I can physically improve or increase the income without betting on market appreciation. Again, for me, it's about removing risk. So if I walk into a property and I go, gosh, okay, let's look at this property. If I install a washer and dryer in that property, I can increase the rent of that unit by $50. Multiply that by 12 months on that unit, it's $600 um, in income. On a 6% cap rate, that's a $10,000 increase in value to that building, $10,000 for me spending $2,000 to install a washer and dryer. So what we focus on is washers and dryers, interior upgrades. So that includes new paint, new flooring, uh, appliances, same thing. I can spend $4,000 on, on an interior upgrade for an apartment and they'll pay me $75 a month for that. And that equates to $15,000 in value increase. So if I just install a washer and dryer and put the interior in place, that total cost is about $6,000. I just made $25,000 on that, on that one unit. Now multiply that across the 200 units. And that is how we make our money. And so we have been able to do that. And yes, in these markets, if you do have job growth, that means that economy's humming. That means that unemployment's down and we're able to increase rents above and beyond that, that's all gravy. But we can do this and reposition a property without ever having to bet on the economy changing from where it is today. And, and so it's, it's a fantastic model. Um, how, how competitive are these properties? Very competitive. I think that, you know, that, that word out there is the value add space. Every building I swear that comes out that I see come out says value add opportunity. It's like the word of the day. Right. Um, it wasn't the case a few years ago, but it is today. It is a very, very highly competitive space. We win in this space. If you were just entering this space, especially in the cities that we're in, because a lot of people, a lot of people are following the same formula we are, is really hard to win. And we're winning for a few things. We're winning on reputation because when you look at the number of deals, maybe 10 come out and we look at them and right away we peg off the ones that go, these people care about price, but they care about execution as much. Like they care about a seamless transaction as much as they care about whether or not we're going to pay another hundred grand for the asset. And so what happens is when you have sellers like that, and we know them, and you know, we, we ask these questions, we know we're going to be able to compete and not have to pay, you know, a crazy price because they're going to be happy with having somebody reputable 
that they know will execute seamlessly and they don't have to have a headache. That's a really big one. Number two is terms. So if you want to go in today's market and say, oh, I'd love to look at the property for free for 30 days. I won't put any non-refundable money down. You're not winning. I mean, unless you're paying a price that is just a price I won't compete with you on. You're, you're paying too much. Um, we move very quickly with really, really high deposits that make it non-refundable. So what happens is it makes it tough for the new enter, you know, the newer person to enter the market. I am so thankful, you know, that we we're able to show up with our resume and say, you know, look, we've done 55 transactions in 50 months, over a billion in transactions, because it puts us to the top as far as credibility goes. But we don't compete when it comes to, you know, um, price. We'll win on other on other terms. So I'm thankful that I had this time when it wasn't as popular a few years ago to build that, you know, that resume that really helps our investors get the best value for the deal. Wow. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So in kind of pulling back a bit, so you're obviously you're excited about Phoenix and, and you guys are operating in, in the in Arizona. Where whereabouts uh, is there other markets that you're operating in and or the places that you're excited about in the US? Absolutely. Uh, we currently operate across five cities, uh, Phoenix, Dallas, um, San Antonio, Houston, and Atlanta are the five cities that we own properties in. We will be bullish um, in all of those cities through 2019. Nothing's changed. Um, we've identified a few other cities that we really like. We really like um, Las Vegas, uh, Denver, Salt Lake City, um, parts of Florida and some of the Carolinas would be other cities that are on our on our radar uh, as far as entering. One of the other things that we look at when we go to enter a city is that I don't want to just own one one property in a city. It's it needs to be a place that we can move into and have some size, because what that allows us to do is is when you're in the market, you can see the market fluctuations. You have a little bit of buying power and whatnot. So every time we enter one if we were just thinking we could get one deal or two deals, we wouldn't continue to enter. So we've stayed back from some cities at this point, waiting until we know that we could get the size that we want to be a long-term presence in. We're not here to play small in any one of those cities. So our our investor, our investment partners will will see us stay very active in the cities that we're currently in already, and majority of our purchases will be there. So, so Janet, it sounds like the over the last couple of years the market's gotten a bit frothier and it's more competitive and uh, and that's kind of it seems like you know this idea of of adding value to multifamily. There's a lot of people that are talking about it. Um, 2019, it sounds like you're you're saying you don't see any any changes coming down down the pike here, but in interest rates are increasing. Like, how do you guys see, um, we've had some people on the program calling for a recession in the United States in 2020. Is that, does that impact your model in any way? Or how do you, how do you mitigate those risks? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, a huge part of my role is constantly watching that um, and ensuring that we stay nimble, that we are buying well below market value in a way that we can reposition that property quickly very quickly. So if we, if we chose to exit, we could, you know, what people don't see behind the scenes is how many deals we just walk away from, because 
if it's not a slam dunk, it's not going to work. We do increase, you know, we model increases into our, uh, you know, our interest rates. I mean, if we're going to see one in December, I don't, don't quote me, but there's just no way it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see two next year. Do I think we'll see more? I don't, I, I think there's some slowing, um, some slowing there, but I, I don't have a perfect crystal ball. I just think that they increased rates a lot this year and the market, everyone needs to catch up with that a little bit. So, um, we, we model all of that in to our, our modeling. So where there used to be a lot, a lot of properties where I'm going, gosh, there's more here than we can buy. There's not enough that we can buy at this point. So we're, we're very picky and spend a lot of energy making sure that we're hitting that, you know, that home run right from the get go. And maybe just while we're talking about the different markets, Janet, so a lot of people are, obviously, it's it's going to be a challenge for them to invest in the type of properties that you're currently investing in. But maybe if you think back to the Janet 2008 version, um, where where would you, which, is there a city or an area of the U.S. that, that somebody looking to get their, their beginning, you know, start in real estate investing, is there a city that you would, that you would recommend looking into? I would, you know, there, there's still, there is still deals that could be bought by anybody in these cities, but expect to lose a lot. And, and, you know, when I got there in, in 2014, when I started buying apartment buildings, brokers didn't return my calls. I'm a girl, you know, in the 54 transactions I've done, I've interacted with four females, four, two of which were not CEO level. They were just a transaction kind of coordinator, senior role, but it, but not a not a like not a lead decision maker. And so I didn't get a call back. You know, I, I couldn't even win the deal. I had to work that much harder. So what I you know when I get this question, I go go get on a plane and go, go get down there. Like you have to know everything six ways um, to Sunday on on that deal and and know exactly what that price is. And you got to write the offers because it does happen. Something happens. Somebody cancels on the deal and you've made the relationship with the broker and you've spent the time in and they call you. It's all about relationships at the end of the day and explaining and, and, and proving to that broker that, you know what, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And, and you will get that chance. You'll get a lot of no's, but you'll get that chance. One place to look at is in any of these larger cities that have had great growth, look at some of their tertiary markets. So um, either the suburbs of that market or the next growing city outside of it. So, you know, we went into San Antonio because it's very close to Austin and Austin's hot. And what's happening is there's this corridor between San Antonio and Austin that, you know, within the next 20 years is going to be built out. It's going to be some mega city. And there's a lot of people that can't afford to live in Austin and get a better quality of life in San Antonio. They're very close together. And so there's businesses moving to San Antonio. And so that was a that was an attractive place. Um, Tucson is a place to watch outside of Phoenix, where, again, you're getting, you know, they're not that far apart, but you're having that growth and you can get, you know, more dollar for what you get. So sometimes just going out to a little bit of the suburbs, like look at what happened in Coquitlam. You know, look at some of these where how many years ago that wouldn't make sense. You drive out there now, it's a megacity. Right. And so... It, it, think of that concept. They're there. 
But if you're going to sit over here and go, where should I, you know, where should I invest? And you're not boots on the ground walking and meeting everyone. No, I, I don't know what you're going to find from afar. You have to go and build those relationships first. Right, right. And I, and you know, at, at least a consistent theme for me as I'm listening to you talk is, is you seem to have a very, a, a great mindset and a, a sense of persistence with your deals. It, how, how much does mindset play into it? Oh gosh. Um, so much, you know, uh, just recently, I think we lost like 10 deals in a row, 10. And, and it was like, you know, do you know, you know how much energy goes into that bid when we really think we can win? I mean, how, how many of my team members fly across the country to walk it? We've modeled it. We've proven it out. You know, we've decided which, um, investment group we're going to go with as far as that hours and hours of time and get down to it. And, it's priced out and we go, it's not a deal. And and you have to walk away. And, and you'd think that it, by this time I'd have thicker skin and I definitely have thicker skin, but I, you know, I'd be lying to say, I don't sometimes go home and my and say to my husband, man, I mean, never went in an apartment building again in my life. Like, and I don't like to show it at work, right? You're, you're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to always be up, you know, but you're beat at that point. Like you have worked really hard with zero win, zero. And you sit back and go, could I have done something better? Could I have done something different? And the truth is you couldn't because you have rules and you don't pass those rules. But, oh, it's a loss. It's like playing on a sports team and losing 10 games straight and trying to get pumped up for the 11th game. Like it's it's going to be a win and you, you feel down. So and you can't say it at work and you don't want to tell your, you know, your investment partners. But I certainly, you know, share it at home and go, gosh, I don't know. But you you get up, you dust yourself off and you you got to fight again or you're never going to win. Right. Maybe thinking about, you know, your mindset and kind of persistence and, and positivity and discipline, um, you know, you're in five markets now. Uh, I'm just curious in terms of how you go about building a team and, and what you're looking for and, you know, the talk about relationships, how you're kind of instilling that in, in team members, getting the right people, building those relationships, uh, can you speak a little bit about that process of, of scaling? So, you know, in everyone we hire and the growth that we've had, there's factual discipline and then there's heart. And for anyone who would come and take a look at the culture at Western Wealth Capital, you would see that 80% of our success is in heart. Heart being people are committed to the vision that we have. And our vision is a lot greater than just making, you know, making money for our investors. We're, we're wealth management. We're here to grow wealth for our investment partners, first and foremost, without question. But we are here to show the real estate industry that you can do business on human terms and not term sheets alone. And that is the mantra in our, in, in our organization. What exactly does that mean? It means that we can be owners that can recognize and be thankful to the property managers that get up every day to the maintenance staff and work tirelessly with a lot of, you know, complaints and a really hard job. Or, I mean, in all the cities we're in, it's hot through the summer and they work outside all day long. And to be able to recognize um, the hard work and the value that they bring to us so that they can go home at night and, and you know, be proud to tell their child what job they do. That's, that's our role. And it's also our role to create safe 
communities for our residents, a place where where they are safe with their children, where the lights are on so that the mom getting the groceries out of the, you know, the the car feels safe walking to her front door and where there's an umbrella over the playground so that the children can play in the middle of the day and not get sun sunburn. We have an obligation to do that. And we can do that and do returns. And, and what happens with that is the heart within this organization grows from that. And we say, for every apartment building, we can do that more in. We're showing the rest of this industry who's age old, all about just making money, that you can do business and you, you can do it with a heart and good. And so when we're building a team, that's the mantra that comes out. And, you know, when you share that with people as you're interviewing them or as you're meeting new brokers in other cities, I promise you, I've won deals because those brokers are behind us on this. They have seen, you know, they could they could close with a group that's just jerks and, and yells at them all the time. Or they could close with someone who's really thankful. And they can close with someone who knows they're going to do good on that property. And we use that to our competitive advantage. Some people don't care. I've been in interviews where I'm, you know, I'm sharing who we are with someone who's joined the team. And I can see that their eyes well up of all of these amazing things that we've done where they don't care and they're not part of our team and they're not going to be part of our extended team, whether they're property management or, you know, the relationships that we build in that city. But I have found that when we align our culture and when we connect on that level, the skill sets there, that's basic, but the heart takes it that much farther. And that is how we've done it. Relationships all day long, but also belief in how we are choosing to do this business differently. Wow. And presumably, I mean, that that's kind of an amazing um, approach. But also, I mean, when you do right by a property and, and right by the people that live there, I mean, you mentioned at the start of the conversation, a, a kind of pride of rentership. Um, like it's it's a it's a smart strategy uh, just in terms of the way people live and treat your, the communities you're, you're building. Correct. You know, I, what, what I can't believe, what I cannot believe is what we're doing is very simple. You know, if, if you like living where we are, we, we have this program called we've got your back. And on one day, this year was July 18th, every single property made available a backpack packed with the school supplies from that local school for a child on that property across every single one of our our properties we made available a backpack so what does that tell our property managers well they were the ones that had to go out and buy them but they get to give a gift a gift that's needed by not everybody not every child needs it some do some don't you know some are really financially strapped and we all know as parents it's not it's not cheap to you know get everything that's needed to bring your you know your child to school but the message is we care about the people that you have to interact with and, and you grow to love. I mean, they see them every day. What it tells our residents is, is we care about you. And, you know, is that resident for the most part going to go and treat the inside of our unit poorly? Is that resident going to move because they're very happy there? Right. The two biggest costs we have to owning apartment buildings is constant movement because it costs a lot of money every time you have to paint the walls clean the carpets everything like that and then how they leave that apartment if they beat you know they beat the heck out of it it's going to cost us that much more and for our entire future as being you know good citizens giving the children children confidence opens the platform for them to learn so if we're going to give back this is a great way 
such that those children, at least on the first day of school, have the tools. And when they have the tools, that opens some level of confidence to begin the path of learning. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's a simple, it's a simple thing. Um, we, we also engage every single one of our brokers, every relationship, you know, you talk about these relationships that we need to build in these cities. We ask for donations to do this. It's not just, you know, not just us, but again, you're building that community of heart and what other owners don't see is I have one buildings because those brokers just, they're really behind these programs we do. And, and, you know, when they're trying to pick person A and B and we're kind of at the same price and they know that the deal is going to get done, they're going to pick us. So um, it's the soft stuff that that all of this comes together on that I don't know how other owners don't always see it. As much as I want to go out on that sentiment, uh, <laughs> I, we have a couple questions for you still if you have time. Um, can you maybe talk about, because I mean, obviously real estate, it, you, you learn from your mistakes in a lot of ways. Can you talk about some of the mistakes that you've made along the way or maybe some of the biggest challenges? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, huh, mistakes, um, every day, uh, I think you make mistakes. I, 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 I actually embrace, I embrace the uh-oh moments because you learn the other side and that uh-oh moment, hopefully it's not too big that you're able to catch it and you won't do it twice, but there's a learning on the other side. It's like those fear moments where you go, I am so scared. And I'm a believer that if you can break that moment you're so scared, I promise you on the other side, you will be that much stronger. I can't tell you how many times I've been frozen in that moment of fear. And and now I, I take and go, okay, you are going to get to the other side. And when you do, you will be bigger, you will be stronger from it. But mistakes. And one of the things that we watch very, very closely is vacancy. When you're trying to upgrade a property um, and change it, um, you often have more turnover. Why? Because you're, you know, people are moving out, you're increasing the rents, you're, you're, you're improving that, that unit. So the, the bad tenants that we've had for the tenants that now we go, Hey, guess what? You can't have garbage on your property or on your patio. And by the way, you're going to have to pay your rent on time. In a lot of the buildings we come into, there's pretty lenient rules and, and the, the not so great tenants, they don't want to be around where there's rules. So we have those folks move out. And we need to get those folks to move out so we can get the good community folks moving in. You know, we don't want crime on our properties. We don't want drug dealers on our properties. We get out all of that trouble and in comes the positive. Well, within that process, you need to manage your occupancy. Don't be silly enough that all of a sudden you wake up one day and your property's half empty. Because great, you've gotten all the tough people out, but now nobody's paying your mortgage or your expenses. So there is a balance to how you, what I call rejuvenate a property and, and how much forced vacancy you make on top of natural vacancy within a property so that you are not stressed for cash flow. And I have made that mistake. It was a long time ago, but we, we watched that closely. And I, I really, really encourage anyone trying to do that to be aware of that because you can get yourself caught where you're going, gosh. I am just bleeding. We never bleed. We'll never even come close to it. So that 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 was a big, oh, was it a mistake? I mean, it was a great learning because when someone tells you that, it doesn't hurt as bad as actually living through it. It will never, ever happen again. So we we spent a lot of time managing that process. Um, let me see. Another mistake would be 
legal agreements. So it's awesome. And I, I really like you and I'm going to take your word. And often you can take someone's word, but um, just, just document it. Uh, you know, when you're buying a building from a seller and they go, sure, we'll leave you, you know, we'll leave you all the office equipment. And then you get there that day and it's not there. Well, it wasn't in, it wasn't in the legal agreement. So they suddenly bought another place and decided to take it. So as much as you would love to take someone's word for it, document it. It's not a, it's not a mean process. It goes great. So you said I could have the office equipment. I'm just going to add it to this document there. And then, right. then it's completely clear between the two parties, you know, what they're saying, or they'll say, sure, I told you you could have it. I didn't say you could have it for free. Oh, okay. No one's wrong in that process, but if you document it, it is very, very clear. Um, you know, what exactly both parties are saying. So Janet, maybe switching gears here, can we talk a little bit about your thoughts on the Canadian market and and maybe more specifically the Vancouver market? Oh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how the Vancouver market, uh, you know, I actually just had a friend this weekend ask me, you know, what do you think? And I, and I say, um, I don't believe Vancouver's ever going to lose in the long term. So if you're going to go and buy something today and you need to hope it makes money in the next two or three years, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, inevitably it seems like it's always gone up. Um, but if you're, if you're willing to be there for 10 years, you're going to make a great return. I have not a question in my mind about that. Why do I not invest in Vancouver? Um, I don't because a, it's not cash flowing. I mean, if you can rarely find something, it's it's not a common thing. You're going to spend a lot of time trying to do that. And B, it's not built on economics. Like it's it's not built on an A, job growth, lack of supply. It's built on, you know, a lot of offshore investment that is hard to quantify. But do I believe in the market? I do. I just, if you have that long-term outlook, you are going to always win in Vancouver. I am not a worry um, in my mind. I wish I had more to tell you than that. I don't watch it intimately day to day. Those are sort of my macro thoughts on it. No, that's, uh, that's an interesting take. That's basically, I think, um, what we've been talking about for the last three years on the podcast, for sure that, uh, and especially in the last six months or so, when the psychology seems to have really shifted, uh, here locally that, uh, that yeah, long term. I mean, it's like people forget that a year ago everyone was, you know, trying to stab each other in the back to get the property. You know. Yeah. Uh, just one last question for you, Janet. Uh, so in tw- two thousand eight, you were working at a full time in a totally different profession. Like it strikes me now that you guys have ten thousand doors. You just got uh, reached a, a pretty an amazing milestone. It seems like you're growing like gangbusters right now. Like, did you did you foresee this in any way uh, that you'd kind of create a company and then lead it to become this massive? Like, were, was this part of the plan? Did you did you have kind of this entrepreneurial spirit that just couldn't be contained? Like, what what do you uh, apart from hard work? Was there something? Did you see it coming? Uh so in 2008 no no gosh no but what's funny is i did say to my dad when i was 25 that i wanted to be the largest mobile home park owner in north america which is a weird thing to say at 25 (laughs) i didn't even 
And you know, I look back and I remember my Especially dad going, Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, good idea, Jano. Like, you know, and that was the end of the conversation, which is just a weird conversation. And to this day, I haven't purchased one yet, but I, I am a fan. Just so we're clear. If I ever get there, we can have another, we can have another <laughs> we'll back on the show. interview. And, and uh, I am a huge fan of, of storage and, and mobile home parks. I just don't own any. Um, but no, what I would say is I remember listening to a speaker once say to me, you know, make a goal and climb that mountain. And somewhere about halfway up that mountain, you might look over and see this lake that you didn't even know was there. And suddenly you fall in love with that lake and you fall in love with swimming. And all of a sudden you want to be a lifeguard. And then that lifeguard leads you to this totally different mountain because suddenly you want to change the way everyone learns swimming. And, you know, you're off to this great education thing on swimming and you look over and there's a totally another peak. And I would have to say that's probably a lot more of my journey, you know, buying one home and flipping it. Did I did I all of a sudden think I was going to do 60 homes? Gosh, no. But, you know, you do one and you go, OK, well, why don't we keep going? Now, somewhere along that line, I, I made a statement that I was going to do a lot more than, you know, I did 15. OK, well, why don't we do 30? Um, we're going to go do 30, you know, 30 this year. Or we're going to get to 30 by the end of this year. And I know that when I bought my first apartment building, I bought 23 units. And I remember sitting there and I was, it was crying with joy and going, oh my gosh, I'll never be as rich as the day I remember I bought that apartment building. I went, I own 23 apartment buildings, like or apartment units. Wow. And I only hope to kind of hold on to that because I've never felt it again. Uh, but, you know, I remember when I bought my 200th unit, I went, forget 200 units. I want a thousand. Well, we got to a thousand. I mean, we passed a thousand, got to 2000 before the year was out. And and that's, you know, then you then you set that next goal. Um, my goal was 10,000 units in five cities. And when you're buying 200 unit apartment buildings. You know, w- when you get there, I went I went to look and when we closed our fifth city, Atlanta, I asked our, you know, our marketing um, head of marketing going, well, what, you know, how many units are we at when we close our fifth city? And she looked up at me and she goes, we hit 10,000 units. So I have been saying to my team for a year and a half, billion dollars, five cities, 10,000 units. And we closed our 10,000th unit on our fifth city. So uh, that was one of those things where you can kind of say, you know, people say is there a universe, is there energy out there? Well, that's a pretty good story to tell you such. Um, our next goals will change. And I, I encourage people to change their goals. It's okay. Set a goal so darn well you get off your butt and go at something. But be okay if that something changes to strive for something newer or greater. That's okay because you wouldn't have got there if you hadn't started your first journey in the first place. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there. We do have uh, just one quick segment here, uh, Janet, before we let you go. We've got the five wire, just five quick questions about Vancouver and your experience in the city. Uh, can you stick around okay. for that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so question number one, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Uh, right now, I'd have to say Maine. Maine, hey, we're coming like from... Main, Main Street area. Yeah, we're coming from... coming. Coming live from Maine and 14th here. So there you good. go. It's a really cool, you know, area where you can just wander around. It's changed so much in the last yeah. eight years. We're, yeah. we're dragging the cool factor down here. So, <laughs> favorite bar or restaurant, Janet? Uh, you know, I have to say Chewy's 
uh, I love oysters. Uh, we like wine and, uh, you know, got good eye candy. <laughs> um, where do you take somebody from out of town, the first place you bring them? Probably take them up Grouse Mountain. I live on the North Shore, and, you know, when our employees come in from out of town, we take them up there. It's, it's a pretty neat place. Westside Mansion or downtown Pentos? Right now, Westside Mansion. Later, downtown Penthouse. Okay. <laughs> That's a common trajectory. And my previous pre-kids would have been downtown Penthouse. <laughs> um, and, and the final question, what's something that you've purchased in the last year or so under $500 that has been a real kind of game changer in your life? Oof. A tennis racket. Tennis racket. I took up tennis and I love it. I'm not good, but it has been a lot of fun and it's been really good learning something that you're not good at. So a tennis racket. This is uh, one thing I'm a huge tennis fan and used to be uh, an avid tennis player, but it's kind of amazing to think that I feel like I don't have enough time to play tennis and, uh, and you do. (laughs) You're an inspiration. (laughs) I have one kid, you have two. Uh, (laughs) It's like, uh, yeah, I got out my game here. Well, you, I'm sure you have some things to teach me about tennis. Like, I like to start with not good, but boy, has it been healthy and just being uncomfortable, really uncomfortable and having to learn something you're not good at. I thought actually in Arizona, everybody was doing the pickleball. Well, it's cornhole. There's pickleball and there's cornhole. And let me tell you, cornhole is another one. The name cracks me up every time. Yeah. <laughs> but it is kind of like a new level of bocce. And I used to make fun of fun of you know uh, my team down there and then they got me going and after a couple margaritas and a good round of cornhole i have to say it's 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 worth looking into. yeah it sounds i can see why that cracks you up every time <laughs> <laughs> well uh, how can uh, how can our listeners find out more about uh, about you janet and also about western wealth capital uh please visit us on our website westernwealthcapital.com has uh, all of our all of our information and I thank you. I thank you guys for um, asking me to join. Thank yeah, you well, so much. thanks so much for your time. There's so many takeaways there. Uh, that was a that was a great conversation. So thanks again for your time, Janet. You're welcome. Have a great day on this sunny day. Yeah, you as well. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with co-founder of Western Wealth Capital. Janet LePage. Matt, super interesting and inspiring conversation with Janet. I am so pumped for 2019. If you're not inspired after that conversation, Adam, I, I'm not sure you have a pulse, which is <laughs> why it's so great to have that as the first uh, episode of the new year. And uh, yeah, I think we're all we're all geared up now. We are, we are. And if real estate is part of your goal setting for 2019, you're going to want to check out VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Yeah, that's right. We got research tools over there like private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's the best research tool out there. And you can get it at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. If you're not using private client services to search Vancouver real estate, you're doing it wrong. And one thing we should say, Adam. What's that? Is it's January 2nd. On January 1st, sold prices became available to the public. So the real estate world has changed, but here's the catch. 
properties have to be registered at the land titles office before the public gets access to sold prices. So if you're wanting up-to-date information, PCS is still light years ahead of other sites out there that are going to have the sold prices available. Yeah. So basically what you're saying, Matt, is you are going to see sold prices in real time as they sell. That's exactly it. Right. Exactly so, it. You're not, there's not a lag of a month or two, which is devastating in a fast moving market like Vancouver. Absolutely. And we've also got our mailing list. If, if you are on the live wire, you're going to get updates on shows, tips and tricks for bu- how to buy and sell real estate. You're also going to get access to the best resources that we have on our site. We're constantly sending out updates and we're doing a lot of conferences in 2019. So if you want to be notified as when we're doing speaking events and uh, how you can get involved, get on that list. Hashtag goals, definitely get on that list and we'll be talking on the podcast as well. We, we don't support <laughs> so, hashtag goals, so that's, 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 that's not in our wheelhouse. Um, yeah, but anyway, if you want to talk anything real estate related, give me a shout anytime. I'm back. I'm ready to go. 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And you, Adam? Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We've also got the nonpartisan line. The secret's going to line. The secret's going to line. He's still on holiday. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Right on. Okay, well, hey, happy new year, guys. And uh, 2019's exciting. Stay tuned, and we'll talk to you next Wednesday. There's a reason, Matt, with all your goal setting, that you're flying home today on a, on a private jet. <laughs> it's still next to the bathroom, though. Yeah, in the coach section. <laughs> Enjoy your flight. (laughs) All right. Thanks. See you guys soon. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate 
or volunteer and they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers, that's hallwayhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.